turning to Genesis 49 this morning. And I forgot to text Brother Benny this morning and, and tell him that we are planning to have a school board meeting tonight. So school board meeting, school board members keep that meeting in mind. Genesis 49, we want to read again this morning at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 34. And we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that there would be nothing between our souls and our Savior today. And we pray that the end of this message today would be for each one of us to examine ourselves before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing to consider the events here in Genesis chapter 34. As you know, um, we've come here because of Israel's words to his son Simeon and, Simeon and Levi that we just read in Genesis 49. And we keep doing this, but really we can't overemphasize the prophetic nature of the things that Israel said to his sons. They're things that are written for our learning. They're things that are written for our admonition. Because it is upon us today that the ends of the world are come. It's you and me that are living in the last days. And that, as we have talked about in Genesis 49 and verse 1, is the context of Israel's words. And his words to these two sons revolve around this incident that we've been looking at here in Genesis 34. The incident that involves Dinah, the only daughter that Jacob had, and Shechem, the Hivite prince of this part of the land of Canaan. And what we've seen here is that Jacob and his family are living this mixed life. They have their Christianity that's pictured to us by the tent and the altar. We see that at the end of chapter 33. And they have the world pictured to us by the city of Shalem. That's where their tent and altar are set up. And what we see in the life of Dinah is that in the midst of the compromise, she's won to the philosophy of the city. 
She is one to the philosophy of the world. Dinah enters into a sexual relationship with Shechem. Dinah is not innocent here, and we've talked in great detail in our last couple of messages about the proof of that. There's one other indication of that in this chapter that we mentioned last week, and I'd like to mention it again this week. Look at verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Notice the words, he took her. And where did he take her? The indication is that he took her to his house because that's where Simeon and Levi take her from in verse 26. And so for whatever time lapsed here between verse 2 and verse 26, Dinah was living with Shechem. You see, not only was the order in the city of Shechem sexual relations first and then marriage, but the natural outgrowth of that was to live together first and then get married. That sounds just like America. We talked a little bit about that last week. In 1950, 78% of households were made up of married couples, almost 80%. That number dropped to 55% in 1990. And today, according to the 2020 census, the percent of households made up of married couples has declined to 45.7%. That's a decrease of 41% since 1950. As we mentioned last week, a Pew Research Center study, the National Survey of Family Growth, and these are, are incredible statistics when you think about it. 69% of adults say it is acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they don't plan to get married. 78% of those ages 18 to 29, 78% of the young people in this country say the same thing, that it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they don't plan to get married. And that is borne out in reality with a 2019 study that showed that 70% of women have cohabitated at some point. And the conclusion of this study was that so what was once an extraordinary living arrangement for a dating couple is now commonplace. And studies have found, including one in psychology today in 2021, that looking at the, the statistics all across the years, the chance of divorce was 131% higher for women who cohabitated prior to marriage. Genesis chapter 34 is as up-to-date as the latest statistics that you can read from these different studies, that you can read from the latest census data. 
And it's like that because Israel is not only telling Abraham's physical seed in Genesis 49 what would befall them in the last days. His words are a prophecy to Abraham's spiritual seed. You and me, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And he's telling those of us who are saved the conditions that are going to exist in the last days. And some of these conditions, secular humanism and promiscuity, materialism, deception, violence, compromise among the people of God are given to us here in Genesis chapter 34. As we come to this chapter to Think about the meaning of Israel's words to his son Simeon and Levi. Young people, we're taking a few minutes to talk about this again this morning because the pressure is going to be on you. The pressure is going to be on you to go along with the course of this world to go along with what everyone else is doing. 78% of your peers, 78% of your peers believe that it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they, even if they don't plan to get married. And that can generate tremendous pressure on you. So whose order are you going to follow? Are you going to follow God's order? Marriage first, and then the physical relationship? Or are you going to follow man's order? The physical sexual relationship first, self-gratification first, the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh first, and then, then maybe marriage. Someone has said, young people, and it's very true. Right is still right, even if nobody does it. And wrong is still wrong, even if everybody does it. This morning, we want to move on in this chapter and begin to examine the actions of the two men who brought us here. And those two men are Simeon and Levi. And again, we have to look at their actions in the light of the spiritual condition of Jacob and his family. I don't believe that point can be overemphasized. Notice again, or notice, if you will, verse 5. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. Jacob held his peace. He held his peace until his sons came in from the field. Why? Why was he silent? Jacob is the head of the family. Why, when Shechem's father, Hamor, comes and he wants to commune with him, does Jacob say to him, there's nothing for us to commune about? 
There's nothing for us to, to speak about. There's nothing to discuss. There is no basis for communion between you and me. What fellowship hath light with darkness? What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? We serve the one true and living God. You worship and serve these strange gods that we see all around here. My daughter and your son have done great wickedness. They've sinned against the God of heaven. And I'm going to take my daughter out of your house and bring her home. I believe that's what Jacob should have said to Hamor. But he held his peace. Silence is golden, so the old saying goes. And certainly silence can be golden because there are times when we should hold our peace. Pete Sobey is someone uh, some of you remember. And he had a little saying, rarely miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. And that's a good rule to live by. I've never gotten in trouble for something I didn't say. But I have spent a great deal of my life being in trouble for things I did say. That I would not have said if I had done what the Bible says. Study to be quiet. Study to be quiet. But that said, there are circumstances where we should speak. Where we shouldn't hold our peace. And, and in those circumstances, when we don't speak, then our silence is not golden. It's an act of cowardice on our part. There's an interesting contrast here between Jacob and Hamor. Jacob holds his peace, but Hamor doesn't hold his. Look at verse 8. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. Hamor is not ashamed of his philosophy. Jacob was ashamed of his faith. But you see, it's hard to talk about your tent, your altar, when you've embraced the city. And Jacob had embraced the city. Spiritually, he's powerless. Spiritually, he's weak. And so he held his peace, just as we do when we're living this mixed life. In verse 7, we see Jacob's sons for the first time in this chapter and the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it and the men were grieved and they were very wroth because he that is Shechem had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter which thing ought not to be done when Jacob's sons heard what had happened they're mad they're mad they're upset they're grieved because Shechem had wrought folly in Israel. And their grief and their anger is, is certainly understandable, but it was only directed at half the problem. 
Not only had Shechem wrought folly and immorality in Israel, Dinah had equally wrought folly and immorality in Israel. Jacob's sons were willing to acknowledge the sin of Shechem. Oh, yeah. But they were not willing to acknowledge the sin of their sister. That's another indication of the spiritual condition of Jacob and his family. It's... um, it's the problem is always out there syndrome. It's always in somebody else's house. It's always somebody else's children. Not my children. Not my family. Not my sister. Here in these circumstances, there's a wake-up call for Jacob. There's a wake-up call for his family. It's what we might call a red flag moment. When I believe God is showing them something of their spiritual condition. He wants them to see, look at us. Look how far down we've fallen. We've come here and we've got our tent and our altar, but we've got it in front of the city. We've embraced the city. And our sister has adopted the morals of the city of Shalem. And here we are blaming Shechem. Here we are in trouble and distress because of the wickedness and rebellion of our own hearts. But they didn't say that. Instead of falling on their knees before God and acknowledging and confessing their sin, here they are blaming someone else. God is putting up a barrier. And Jacob's sons ignore the barrier. And they continue in their own way. Look at verse 11. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister, And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. For that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Notice the word deceitfully in verse 13. Interesting that it's in verse 13. 13 in the Bible being the number of rebellion. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor's father deceitfully. The sons of Jacob, and specifically, Simeon and Levi had a plan. And their plan was to tell Shechem and Hamor that if they would be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. And the deceitfulness of their plan was that after these men were circumcised, Simeon and Levi knew that they would be incapacitated. And at the height of their being incapacitated, when when they would not be able to stand and fight, Simeon and Levi would then come in and kill them. 
But here's what's interesting, and it's very instructive. There's another deceitful plan at work here at the same time. Look at verse 20. And Hamor and Shechem his son came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters for, to, to us for wives and let us give them our daughters. But here's the kicker. Here's, here's what they've got to sell. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Now, notice how Hamor and Shechem sell the plan. Look at verse 23. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them and they will dwell with us. Hamor and Shechem sell the, 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 the men of the city on this plan, on this idea of circumcision, by telling them their plan. Can we say their deceitful plan? which is through these marriages, they'll take everything that Jacob and his sons have. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? And what we want to see is this. Dinah was not the only one who had been won to the city and won to its philosophy. Jacob's sons had been won to that philosophy. Jacob's sons were living and acting and dealing just like Hamor and Shechem. They had adopted the same deceitful philosophy as the men of Shalem, and that is the end justifies the means. The end justifies the means. Getting these people circumcised, that's the means to get them into a place where they will not be able to fight so that we can kill them. And here's Hamor and Shechem. They say, let's go along with this plan. It's the means to our end, which is to take everything they've got. Jacob's son's actions say that, it's, that, that deceit is right and justified in the avenging of our sister. It's, it's right and justified when we use it to get what we want. Hamor and Shechem said, let's get circumcised. Let's marry into this family because that's how we can get what we want. And what we want is their cattle and their substance. That's how we can get everything they have. And so deceit is right and justified when we use it to get what we want. There's no difference between the sons of Jacob and Hamor and Shechem. You see, folks, when you mix the tent and the altar and the city, the way and the philosophy of the city will always win out. Always. Without exception. If you want the proof of that, look around at Christianity in America today. Mixing 
truth and error, compromising right and wrong, to accomplish some spiritual end, look what's happened. The compromise always wins. But there's another thought here that is in the proposal of Jacob's sons that I'd like for us to think about. It's one that has a a, a very real application to these last days. Jacob and his sons mixed the tent and the altar and the city. Jacob and his sons mixed Christianity and worldliness. And when you do that, what you get is another gospel. What you get is a popular gospel that people are willing to go along with. Notice the message that Jacob's sons present here. If you'll be circumcised, if you will do this outward work in the flesh, then we will become one people. If you'll do this outward work in the flesh, you'll be one people with the seed of Abraham. That's another gospel. It's a gospel of works. The orders are all wrong here. We learn in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign. It was given to him as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham was circumcised in his heart before he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And we know that because before Abraham was ever circumcised, the Bible tells us he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's when Abraham was circumcised in heart, when he believed God. And then, then, being counted righteous by God, then God set his seal upon him in his flesh. The order in Abraham's life was first the inward circumcision of the heart and then the outward circumcision in his flesh. Folks, that is the order of salvation. Hold your place here and turn over if you would like to turn. We're just going to go there and then write back. But Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 28 because Paul says something here very, very important. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Uh, Let's go back to Genesis 34 and verse 13. You can write that reference right here. 
you can write it beside Jacob's son's proposal. Because what they're telling Hamor and Shechem and the men of this city is the very opposite of what we just read in Romans chapter 2. Jacob's sons are telling these men that he is a Jew which is one outwardly. And that circumcision is outward in the flesh. And if you'll be circumcised outwardly in your flesh, then we'll be one people. You will be Jews. Folks, that's another gospel. And it's answering deceitfully to tell these men if they will do something outward in the flesh, then they can be one people with the seed of Abraham. That's the message that you get when you mix the tent and the altar and the city. That's the the, the message that you get when you mix Christianity and try to make it a message that appeals to the world. You get another gospel. Isn't this the popular gospel of our day? Do you want to make a commitment to Christ? Do you want to make a commitment to Christ? Not surrender. Not surrender. Commitment. I mentioned to you from time to time the difference between commitment and surrender. The chicken is committed to your breakfast every morning. The pig is surrendered for your breakfast every morning. Do you want to make a commitment to Christ? Then raise your hand. Walk the aisle. Come down to the front. Repeat a prayer. And when you get through with the prayer, the preacher will pronounce you saved. He'll schedule your baptism and add your name to the church roll. That's modern-day circumcision. That's modern-day circumcision. It's something that is outward in the flesh. And it's popular. It's popular preaching in America. People respond to it. Like Hamor and Shechem and the men of the city. They were perfectly willing to be circumcised. They were perfectly willing to do something outward in the flesh... Because after that, they were going to go on with the plan that they had for their life. And what was their plan? Their plan for their life was to trade and get possessions. And those possessions included the cattle and the substance of Jacob and his sons. This outward circumcision in the flesh didn't change these men. Hamor and Shechem and the men of the city just added circumcision to what they were already doing. Just as people today are adding Christianity to what they are already doing. And then going through this outward show in the flesh and being unchanged by it. They just continue on in the plan that they had for their lives. That's the picture. That's the prophecy, I believe, that we have here in Genesis chapter 34 of these days, the last days. Christianity in 21st century America. And it's this message that's being preached in this country today that is perpetrating the single greatest problem in churches today, and that's the problem of the false profession. To preach 
that the outward work of the flesh can bring about a marriage and join men and women and young people into one people with Christ is another false and blasphemous gospel. The true gospel is that he is not a Christian which is one outwardly. Neither is that salvation which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Christian which is one inwardly. And salvation is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. Salvation takes place in the hearts of men and women and young people when we humble ourselves, when we humble our heart, when we come to the Lord Jesus and we come to him with a broken and a contrite heart and we lay down our sin and rebellion. The sin and rebellion that nailed him to the cross of Calvary and in repentance and faith. We ask him to be our savior. And when we do that, God circumcises our heart. And he gives us in our heart the seal of the righteousness of faith. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. In whom also, after that ye believe, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. That's the circumcision of the heart. It takes place after we believe. That that is the order of true salvation. The question this morning is, has your heart been circumcised? Not talking about the outward circumcision of the flesh, we're not talking about if you've, if you've raised your hand and walked an aisle and, and been baptized and put your name on, on a church roll, even this church roll. The question is, have you been saved? Has there been a time in your life when you've come to the end of yourself and you realize that you cannot save yourself, that you're without God and without hope in the world? that neither is there salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Has there come that time in your life when you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You can trust him this morning right where you are. There's nothing, there's no work for you to do. The work has been done. The price has been paid. And so the gift of salvation is to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. The question, if we're saved this morning, is what kind of life are we living? Are we living with our tent as strangers and pilgrims here in this world? Do we have an altar where daily... The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Do we have this altar where daily we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service? Do we have an altar where daily we're crucified with Christ? Nevertheless, we live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
Do we have this altar where we're crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us? Is that the kind of singular life that we're living? Are we living this mixed life? Oh, we have the tent. We have the altar. But we have it before and in the context of the city of this world. And this mixed life causes us to hold our peace. It causes us to hold our peace. It causes us to be ashamed of our faith. Because we don't want to do anything to, to hurt our standing with the world. And if we do try to speak a word for the Lord, it makes us seem as one that mocked. Remember, that was Lot's problem in Sodom. The final hours before the judgment of God came, and he goes to talk to his sons-in-laws, which married his daughters, and he told them, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord is going to destroy this place. And the Bible tells us he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Because it's hard to talk about your tent and your altar when you've embraced the city. Embracing the city makes us spiritually weak. It makes us spiritually powerless. Spiritually silent. So that we hold our peace. When we ought to be praying, Lord, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word. The only way to do that is when we have our tent and our altar, period not mixed with the city of this world. How is it with us today? A tent and an altar? Or a tent and an altar and the city of this world? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this prophetic passage of Scripture. The prophecy here of the last days we pray that you would help us to think about these things today, to examine ourselves. Those who are lost, maybe someone here who's made a commitment to Christ, but they've never surrendered their heart to him. We pray that you would speak to them. And Father, help your people today. Those of us who are saved, help us to examine ourselves and see if we have a singular eye, to see if we have this singular life of tent and altar with no mixture from the city of this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.